0: Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea podcast, Pressurized. A short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear and you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. Right, some fun news. There was some good stuff this month. There was a really nice Vox piece about Edith Widder to sort of promote her new book, Below the Edge of Darkness. Her main sort of career focus was to study animals without disturbing them. She's quoted as saying, "We're, we're just so obtrusive when we go down there with our big noisy thrusters and bright white lights. She thinks that even if the animals aren't actually removed from the area, they may not be showing natural behavior. It may impact their behavior. So she was really interested in observing animals without them knowing that we were there. Tricky thing to do. So she had an inspiration from the stoplight loose jaw, a particular type of fish that uses Red bioluminescence, which isn't very effective in the deep sea, but it essentially means that it can illuminate its prey without them being able to detect it. So, inspired by that, she created the Eye in the Sea, which is a a low light, red light camera, basically to hopefully film deep sea animals without even knowing that they're there. One of the questions we get asked a lot whether the visible white lights disturbs the animals, because we tend to pair up with sort of bait and using attracting scavenging animals. Their desire to eat a dead thing seems to overwhelm any sort of issue with their with their vision but if you wanted to look for some other behaviour uh, then something that they're invisible to makes a lot of sense cool new underwater GPS based on sound waves so the difficulty is as soon as you're below the surface a huge swath of the electromagnetic spectrum is just knocked out Uh, So you can't use GPS below the surface. You have very little bandwidth once you're down there. Uh, So the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute wants to deploy sonic beacons, which can be used to triangulate tagged animals. Uh, And we've talked about the SOFAR channel in the past, the interesting sort of depth range where basically you can bounce sound down the thermocline, the density change in the deep sea. And that can transfer sounds from... Huge distances. So they're deploying these one-ton boys to make use of this so-far channel and to create a sonic network, basically. So as opposed to sonar pings, they've dubbed these lower pitch bursts, pongs, lovely bit of alliteration there, but they can be received up to a thousand kilometers away. And there's plans to put two more boys out, which would cover the whole east coast of the United States as far as the Sagasso Sea. So great for tracking animals. They're sort of fixed points that you can then range. My... Little worry. If you're sort of inspired by whales and dolphins, surely this occupies the same frequency range and depth channel that these animals are.
1: I would have hoped to have thought about that.
0: Yeah, I'm assuming who he is going to have considered disturbing marine mammals. But I thought this was interesting because it's very similar to how the sub. Navigated with its trio of landers that allows it to range and know its position based on them.
1: Yes, seems sort of idea. Isn't it? Put something static on the seafloor, and you can triangulate that. It doesn't move, and then you the moving object in this case, the sub that runs through the middle of it, pings off those. It's a cool idea.
0: So, on one of the dive streams, so we talked about Nautilus Live on our dive streaming episode, and I said that incredible things can happen and you can have a front row seat for new discoveries. And one of them was the Yellow Brick Road. Exploring a deep sea ridge just north of Hawaii, about one kilometer depth, they found a patch of seabed that looks very much like the Yellow Brick Road. The volcanic rock is fractured in a way that looks strikingly similar to bricks. And it's likely the result of rapid heating and cooling from multiple eruptions over time at this margin. It does look like an archaeological dig, basically. It looks like an old Roman road. And they just came across it on the seabed. Very, very cool we're going to have to do a confession because despite ranting and raving about how we're showing the deep sea as it really is, we are guilty of assuming that deep sea is a synonym for the bottom of the sea, where in fact, most of the deep sea is open water. And by volume, that is by far the biggest proportion of habitat on the planet. So we've got to try and write that today, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about the other bit.
0: We've clearly revealed our incompetence. We need to speak to someone who knows about this extra mysterious zone in the deep sea do you have anyone
1: i know a guy we should give him a call today we have tracy Sutton, who's a renowned ichthyologist from nova southeastern university in florida welcome to deep sea podcast
2: thank you so much for having me so
1: i think for the benefit of the of the audience when we talk about the epipelagic and the mesopelagic what are we talking
2: about? Uh, well, actually, it's a relatively common phenomenon in deep sea science. It seems to mostly revolve around the seafloor. So uh, we're, we're kind of used to being the odd person out a little bit. But in terms of the pelagic environment, we basically divide it up by light penetration. So epipelagic is where you have enough light for photosynthesis. We tend to use uh, 200 meters as this magic point, but lately we're finding out it varies fairly widely depending on where you are. The whole thing is we tend to classify organisms as epipelagic, mesopelagic, bathypelagic, but you know, the more we really look and, and think about it and, and see how it connected it all is, that's really just the daytime picture. So it, it almost is worth that kind of addendum. Every time you say mesopelagic, you just say during the day because... At night, you know, it just is full of mesopelagic. So, what gets me
1: about the pelagic and the mesopelagic and the twilight zone and all that is the scale, right? So, let's talk about mesopelagic fish. I know you have some big numbers here in terms of diversity, biomass, you know, how those compare to commercial fish species because the mesopelagics are not fish that normal people would have probably come across and perhaps don't appreciate just how huge these populations are.
2: Exactly right. You know, and a lot of it is based on our biases of how we sample it. We want to know what's there, so we tow a midwater trawl, but then we find that things are pretty good at avoiding that. So we, we look at it with acoustics, and then we see the scale of the avoidance, but the acoustics don't tell you what it is. They're just bright colors and pretty pictures. Mm. So So then we send down... Uh, cameras and do some optical observation. And then we see all these jellyfish and all these things we don't catch with nets or see with acoustics. But then you're just looking through a keyhole at this tiny little volume. So it's very difficult to come up with any meaningful numbers. It's almost like use every technique you can get and take the highest number you can get. And then that's still probably less than what's out there kind of thing. It's it's a lot of biomass. It's, it's pretty widely dispersed and all, but that's still not stopping some entities from wanting to commercially fish it, you know, because, oh, there's a lot of biomass. Let's go get it. To illustrate
1: that whole thing about such a huge mass of animals, they migrate up to the surface at night and back down during the day. That If you think about those spread across the entire Pacific Ocean, and the Pacific is half the planet. By the time the the sun's gone down on one side, the sun's coming back up on the other side. So you have this huge undulating vertical migration, which never stops. It must be going on 24-7, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, half the planet, half the time is undergoing a vertical migration just in the Pacific. So the amount of carbon going up and down is just immense, And then when you add the human element, it's very difficult to tell people why they should care about these Mm. creatures. Most people, you know, can we eat it? No, then we don't care. But (laughs) but all that carbon, taking carbon out of the atmosphere through the pump, then people start, oh, okay. And I've seen estimates of the monetary value of that service. Hundreds of billions of US dollars up to trillions is the estimate of its monetary wow. value of that. Who are the, the main players in this then? Is it the McTorford's or is there
1: a a few sort of big families in there.
2: We just finished a carbon export model in the Gulf of Mexico, and and found out that yeah, it's this family of fishes, the lantern fishes, are the major players. They're not the most abundant midwater fish. That belongs to this little ridiculous looking thing called a cyclothony, which. Basically, it kind of looks like a worm with two eyeballs, and it vaguely resembles a fish. But, you know, there's just these mind-boggling numbers of cyclothony, maybe more than all of their vertebrates combined, including all of their fishes. But the lantern fishes, they're the real carbon engine, if you will. Over half the carbon export by fishes seems to be done by these lantern fishes. Are there
1: typical traits of a mesoplastic fish, or is it just an absolute free-for-all?
2: There are a couple of characteristics most of them have, which is some form of lights along their belly to counter shade from below, hide their own shadow. But then it really just blows up. You really see almost the largest gamut of vertebrate diversity that there is. You see tiny, tiny little eyes or some of the largest eyes per vertebrate size of any animal. And then you see no teeth or some of the biggest teeth, again, that a vertebrate possesses. Just, <laughs> just, Some fish have teeth so big when they close their mouth, they have to look through their teeth. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's ridiculous.
1: What blew me away about your stuff was that I always assumed that deep mesopelagic fish were all deep sea fish. And you were saying that, actually, if you go out and look hard enough, you'll find reef fish out there. Yeah. You'll find all these other dudes who are not supposed to be there are all out there in open ocean, midwater, which I just find mind-blowing.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. For all the world, they look like pelagic fish until they, I guess, decide it's time to go be a reef fish or whatever. But then when you think about the reef environment, they change on these thousands to tens of thousands of year cycles they change with sea level rise and even the old coral reefs are not very old thousands of years these species are millions of years old it's like the open ocean is the constant and it has this pool of juveniles ready to recolonize the coastal zone if something really goes badly and everything gets wiped out there's a pool of recruits right there out in the open ocean
1: what happens if you go deeper the abyssal pelagic, the hadal pelagic. I'm just wondering whether there would be even, is there any reason to believe there would be stuff that down deep midwater? Would there be enough food to support that?
2: There would be if you had a lifestyle that allowed you to go a long time between meals. So again, as as we're thinking about something like a bristle mouth, usually uh, less than 10% of anything you catch has food in its stomach. So it seems like it's it's a thing that's used to not eating much or it doesn't require much. So that would be the trick. There would have to be something that was, uh, had such a low metabolic demand that a meal once in a blue moon would do it.
1: Yeah, One of the things I think what pe- people like to hear about when, you, when you're a scientist who works with nature and, and animals in particular is what is the most ridiculous fish that you get down there because I know having looked at your website there are some real beauties in there <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah no there there are some some absolutely ridiculous fish and then you realize that fish mathematically may not see another of its own species in its lifetime so now you've got this wow. ridiculous looking fish bobbing around basically adapted for utter loneliness so <laughs> what a, so what you're saying is it's ugly on the inside I, and the outside I know, it's, it's probably bitter <laughs> you know it ad- in addition to looking ridiculous, it's probably bitter the entire time. So, there, there it I is. I guess it's one of those things that
1: if evolution had a conscience, they would probably not think that anyone's ever going to see these things. So they just put them underwater and said, "Like, okay, I, that was not the greatest fish I've ever come up with, but it's okay. We'll bury it around a thousand meters. No one will ever see it." Yeah, yeah. And then, boom, there it is on the internet.
2: Yeah, the the poor cosmic <laughs> joke come to roost.
1: Tracy, thanks very much for joining us today. That's been absolutely fascinating.
2: Uh, it has been a good time. While we're
0: on the Mesopelagic, Don has a great story about the early days of studying the deep scattering layer before we even knew what it was.
3: Hello, this is uh, oceanographer, explorer Don Walsh, and I've got another sea story for you. I like to call this one the elusive deep scattering layer. Well, what is the deep scattering layer, the DSL, and how was it first detected? In World War II, uh, sonar operators looking for submarines and also trying to map the seafloor, saw false indications of a seafloor and shoal condition, and perhaps even submarines that seemed to be appearing in places where they shouldn't be. Then they noticed that there was a daily vertical migration of this shallow area, so that some theorized, well, perhaps it's just a dense layer made up of millions of animals, because seafloor doesn't move up and down very much. It wasn't until the late 1960s that Dr. Eric Barm of San Diego State University and the Navy Electronics Laboratory in San Diego decided to go out and use manned submersibles to actually visit the DSL and find out who lived there. Sadly, we never saw the deep scattering layer. The surface sonar on, on the research ship showed that the critters made a hole as we passed right through them, and they also had no luck in Collecting specimens that day. So it was not a good day for science, perhaps. Well, Eric Barham was able to uh, continue his work using manned submersibles, both the Bathyscaphe Trieste and the Cousteau designed diving saucer. He finally saw the critters, uh, which turned out to be small lanternfish and gelatinous sophonophores. He found the relatively large swim bladders actually gave the acoustic results associated with hard target data, such as the false seafloor. Since those early researchers a half century ago, much more has been done on the deep scattering layer. Better sonars, physical sampling, more researchers getting involved, and they have helped answer many of the questions or mysteries of this DSL. So was Professor Barham's first dive a failed expedition? I think no, because if you don't look for something you will never find anything. And he kept trying in the years after our first dive and was eventually successful. We'll
0: deep see you next time, and I abyss you already. The Deep Sea podcast is supported by our company, Amatos Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the Deep Sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the Deep Sea to your audience through storytelling, fact checking, or presentations,
2: we can help with that as well. We want the Deep Sea to be accessible to everyone.